The reading of God's word this morning is found in James. James chapter 5. We'll be reading the last two verses. James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. That is God's word. Bible, we're, we're going to be finishing the book of James this morning, and, and we've spent the past several months examining the, the tests of faith that James lays down for us in order so that we can discern whether our faith is real or whether our faith is false, whether it lines up with the kind of faith that God calls us to, or whether at the end our faith will be found to be fruitless. Now at the end, as we, as we normally do, I would like to, to give an opportunity about probably a little over halfway through the sermon, two-thirds of the way through the sermon, for, for people who, who have, have been challenged or encouraged or blessed, or if there's been something that has really helped you personally from the book of James, we want to give an opportunity for you to be able to, to share that. So, um, so I will uh, we'll ask um, Joel in a little while if, if he could grab... The microphone, and uh, and you can come down to one of the to come down to the microphone and just take an opportunity. So, so would be asking if you just be really be be thinking um, about that as I preach and as things come to mind, and and you know maybe there's something that you have experienced from God's word that other people need to hear. You know, there, there's no sin but that which is common to man. And I know when I was in seminary, my pastor talked about not only exegeting the passage of Scripture, but also to, ex to exegete the congregate congregation. So to actually consider various people in the congregation and what their personal needs are. And he said that if you can, if you can apply really to, to what the text is, apply that to, to four or five or six individuals in the church, you're really going to hit on the majority of issues that people face. So maybe, again, maybe there's something that, that you have learned here that other people need to hear as well. So as we, as we finish up here on the book of James, um, I think it's really important that we, that we consider these things and consider how how we have been blessed by the word and how we consider what a, a correct response should be to God's word because it's really easy to go through a book like James and to draw some wrong conclusions. It's really easy to go through a, a book by like like the book of James and to to come away feeling that that you need to save yourself. You see, James doesn't explicitly talk about the gospel anywhere in this letter. James is assuming an understanding of the gospel on the part of the recipients of the letter that he's written. So he doesn't come back to cover that again. James is a very practical book. And what he's doing, as I said at the outset, is he is laying down individual tests of whether one's faith is real or whether one's faith is false. It's, it's very similar in that respect to, um, to, the, to the book of, of 1 John, which, which John gives us laying down tests of salvation. Now, James focuses more on the practical side, whereas as in 1 John, it's more all-encompassing. He lays down as one of the tests of true faith correct doctrine. And also he lays down the love test. Are you loving God and loving other people? And then there's the obedience test. Are you obeying what God's word says? And that is really where James lands. He's focusing on obedience to God's word. 
So if you think about the book of James on its own, apart from the context of the rest of the Bible, then you can draw wrong conclusions. And another wrong conclusion that you can draw is it's very easy to read a book like this and to come away with a wrong view of your salvation. You can come away from studying the book of James and be convinced be completely convinced that you are not really saved. Because again, the focus is so intensely practical. So James spends his time here dealing with issues like anger, care for the needy, being a, a, a doer of the word, a hearer of the word and not a doer, partiality, a lack of works in keeping with repentance, sinning with our mouths, acquiring wealth sinfully. Uh, making false oaths and lack of prayer. That's really basically what, what James is dealing with here, but, but all of those things are meant to be tests of whether our faith is real or whether it's not. And James here wants us to take his letter and to do something about it, to do something about it. Now, it's not about trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and save yourself. If that's the conclusion that you draw from the book of James and you really haven't understood the book of James and you haven't understood what I've been talking about as I've preached through it. James is also telling us here that, that, that if, we, if we, we come away from this realizing that there's a problem with our faith, that he wants us to repent. He wants us to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Now that can be true, that is true whether you are here this morning as an unbeliever. God is calling you to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ or whether you are here as a believer, but living in some area of unrepentant sin, there's like a, a stronghold in your life that you're not willing to let go of, God is calling you to turn away from that sin and also to turn to Jesus Christ. Likewise, if you are here this morning and, and you are encouraged because you think about these things and know you're not doing them perfectly, but your life is characterized by this, then, and you're drawing encouragement from that, then God is also calling you to turn to Jesus Christ with a heart of thanksgiving, with, with a joyful heart that just overflows with, with what God's grace is doing in your life. So whatever the situation that you are facing, the answer is the same. It's turn to Jesus Christ. Now, as I said a few moments ago, there, there's going to be people that are going to come away from a book like this or come away from sermons through the book of James and, and they're going to, to, to be convinced that they're not saved. Now, there, there are certain people among us who are, are more prone to that type of, of introspection. There's people that that wanna that, that just naturally look inwards. Now there's an element of value in that. But the something that James wants us to do is not to focus on ourselves when we read these things. Again, it's to focus on Jesus. There's really five reasons why somebody could think that they are not saved. Well, the first is that they're really not saved. And as, as disappointing it is when somebody who is really saved thinks that they're not, it's far, far, far more dangerous to think that you really are saved when you're not. Your salvation does not depend on your assurance of salvation. Your salvation depends on Jesus Christ. So maybe as you, as you see these things, you draw the correct conclusion that you're not saved. 
Or maybe there's an issue in your life that the Holy Spirit wants to deal with. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us that sense of assurance. It's never my job. I'm not going to go and say to you, yes, you're saved. Don't worry about it. That would be incredibly negligent of me. It's the Holy Spirit that testifies to our hearts that we are the children of God. But maybe the Holy Spirit is withdrawing a sense of assurance because there's an area of sin in your life that the Lord wants to deal with. Or maybe he wants you to to go beyond your self-reliance and to press into him. Or maybe you might be feeling unsaved because of of a faulty doctrine. Because you don't really understand how salvation works. Or maybe it's a demonic attack. That's possible too. Or maybe it's also because in in some people, and particularly those who are are prone to that type of, of morbid introspection, they enjoy a pity party. There's something about it that the flesh enjoys beating oneself up. But again, the answer to all of these things is to turn to Jesus Christ, to have your faith in him and him alone. So so being aware of these things, it causes me to, to, to come back and to preach the gospel week in, week out. Because we never outgrow our need for the gospel. You know, I used to think that the gospel was something that, that, we did, that I did back there. Yeah, okay, I, I, I put my faith in Christ 19 years ago. I don't need to hear the gospel anymore. But I need the gospel every bit as much today as I did 19 years ago. I still need God's grace. I still need to be reminded of God's love for me. I still need to be reminded of God's love for my brothers and sisters that sometimes get under my skin. I need to remember God's forgiveness of me and that out of that forgiveness, I'm joyfully being willing to to forgive other people who sin against me. So we all need the gospel today as well. And sure, maybe maybe there is sin in your life. Maybe James here, as we've studied this book, has exposed areas of blind spots in your life that you need to turn away from. But again, I, I, I would hope that, that if, you're, if you're genuinely saved and you're turning to him with a heart of repentance and not perfectly, but you're, the trajectory of your life is Godward. If your life is, is characterized by obedience, characterized by the, by the types of things that, that James is talking about here, that, that you won't draw again, that you will not draw false conclusions. Think about King David for a moment. If you were to meet King David in the days following his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, you probably would have drawn the conclusion that King David is a vile unbeliever. But what's God's perspective about King David? God referred to King David David as a man after his own heart. Still a vile sinner like each one of us, but dependent on God's grace. And the evidence of that grace is Psalm 51. So we talked about this last week. If, if, there's, if there is an issue in your, in your life that you need to repent of and that, that God is stirring up your heart on, turn to, to a psalm like Psalm 51 and pray it. Pray it. Make, that, make David's prayer of repentance your prayer of repentance. But again, let it also be a reminder that what happened to David could happen to any one of us apart from the grace of God. Any one of us, any one of us is liable to to falling to the most vile forms of sin without God's strength flowing in us. But let it also be a reminder of the, the, the 
loving forgiveness of the mercy of God and then press into him and lay hold of that. So James, when he wrote his letter, might, might have been able to uh, assume an understanding of the gospel on the part of, of his readers. But unfortunately, I can't do that. I can't do that because I know that we, we all come from, from different theological understandings and theological misunderstandings. That we all come from, from different relationships or perceived relationships with the Lord. So I'm not going to assume the gospel for a second. I'm going to remind us of it again and again and again. That's my, my desire is to take Spurgeon's advice and to take my text and make a beeline for the cross. That's my desire to do that week in, week out, to remind us of the cross of Christ. But now that James has completed his letter and he's laid down the tests of faith, it would have come to light that some of the people that were sitting in the midst of this church, of James's church, were, were unbelievers or possibly were believers who had fallen into sin. And I believe that's the case here with us as well. That through the studying of this book, it has come to light that some amongst us are unbelievers, or at least have turned away from God in a specific area of life. But James doesn't just leave us to sit there and wallow in it. Just as last week he told us that, that if any of us are sick, we should go to the elders. So when, when our faith is failing, we, we rely on the faith of another. We go to the godly men that, that, that God has called to lead this church. And we ask them to stand in the gap for us. We ask them to intercede for us. And he also told us, this was in, in chapter 5, 13 to 17, that we go to one another and confess our sins to one another in order to, to, to help us through. We rely again on the faith of somebody else when our faith is lacking. But here in verses 19 and 20, he's putting the onus on everybody. He's saying maybe you have come to the conclusion that somebody in your life, somebody you care for, is in sin. And the something that he is calling you to do is to go, to go after them, to win them back. You know, we live in a culture where, where we don't want to be up in anybody else's business. We're so individualistic that we rarely even think about our responsibilities to one another. But in the New Testament, there are fully 30 different one another commands. Go through your Bible and just underline them or highlight them. They're there. You cannot do the Christian life alone. We need one another. If anybody tries to say that, that yeah, they're a Christian, but you know, I've been, I've been burnt at churches and, and I'm, I really don't like organized religion. They are failing, not so much the test that, that James lays down, but the test that John lays down. How can you say you love Jesus, who you haven't seen, if you don't love your brother, who you have seen? You can't do the Christian walk alone. We need each other. So if somebody that you know is failing in a particular area, you pray for them and you humbly go to them and try to win them back. And that's what James is telling us to do this morning. If you are aware of somebody else who's in sin, there are two people you should go to. First, you should go to God, then you should go to them. It's your responsibility. So let's just consider here for a few minutes and we'll give a, a quick overview of, of the book of James 
and just outline some of the, the key issues, the key tests of faith that, that James has laid out for us. And again, at the end of this, I'll give an opportunity for you to share something that God has shown you. I would love it if a few people could, could share to encourage the, the body, what he's doing by his spirit through his word. So the first test that, that James really lays out is there in, um, in chapter 1, verses really verses 5 to 18. And it's, it's the lack of faith. The lack of faith. It's somebody who doesn't really trust in the, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It's somebody who first we see prays to God while doubting him. Now, I would ask, though, why would you go to somebody and ask him for something if you didn't think that he could or would deliver on the thing you're asking for? It's, it's illogical at best. But what it really is, it's, it's slanderous against God's character. It's actually saying that you don't really believe that God is good and loving and faithful and wise. So you don't trust him. Now again, all of us can, can be tempted with those thoughts and we need to confess them to God as sin and ask him to do a work in our hearts to help us to grow in those areas. Again, we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and will ourselves to have faith. We can't will ourselves in order to, 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 to believe the, in the attributes of God. Now, starting next week, I'm going to be going through a series through the summer on the attributes of God. One of the key things that you can do in these times is to meditate on who God is. And I trust that we will all grow in our knowledge of God through that time together. But we go to him in prayer, trusting who he is. Trusting, as it says there in verse 17, that, that every good gift comes from him. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. He is more sure than the sun in the sky, than the planets in our solar system. God never changes. And the first thing here that you see in verse 18 is that, that he, he brought us forth by the word of truth of his own will. That it was God's will to save his elect. And so we trust in him. Maybe it's somebody who is, is easily angered. In verse 119, now we're not talking here about an occasional angry outburst, but somebody who, who often gets angry at the least provocation and doesn't repent. So I want to ask you this morning, what makes you angry? Are you angry about the things that God is angry about? And do you get angry in the way that God gets angry? You know, just this week, uh, I, I put a post on Facebook about um, an article that Al Mohler had written dealing with homosexuality and talking about, about why we believe it's sinful as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians. Well, there's really only one kind of Christian that's a Bible-believing Christian. But I was responded to by a couple of people, and then one of the guys who responded to me is actually the, the head of... The, the, Colonia, the Kelowna Atheists Society, it's the Center for Inquiry in Kelowna, which is just, it's a euphemism for the, um, for the, the atheists, so-called atheists and free thinkers of Kelowna. And um, I've had some interaction with this, this individual um, over the last couple of years. And, uh, and it actually started because I'd written something and he responded really angrily. And I said, well, I thought you guys, you guys were the free thinkers. This doesn't sound very free thinking here. It doesn't sound like you want to entertain dialogue. And then the, I had actually partially framed a response to him, and what he asked was, they were really legitimate questions. They were valid questions. And before I had finished framing my response, there was a response from, from an, another individual who, um, who I know from years ago, and um, 
was actually removed from his church as a pastor because of, of some of his behavior. And he went from zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds with this atheist, immediately getting angry and in the flesh with him. And then I, I really didn't feel it was helpful, so I actually deleted his comments, and then he immediately turned on me. And I had seen this behavior before, um, or heard of the behavior before, but had never actually, I'd never faced it before. And so, and he got very insulting, and, it, and, um, and so I wrote back to him and said, well, I actually unfriended him on Facebook, which is, I guess, and blocked him, which is, I guess, if, if you don't know Facebook, that's one of the, the, the things that you can do if somebody is, is behaving inappropriately. And he said it was censorship and, and all those things. But the problem is, I actually agreed with a lot of what he was saying to this atheist, but he was responding in such an angry angry way that the, the, the vitriol was just bubbling up from him. And when I asked whether he was being gentle with, with this man, he, he reverted to the fact that Jesus called the, the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Now, Jesus did do that, and there was a time to do that, but Jesus didn't go to that level immediately. His, that type of, of language was reserved for the religious hypocrites. And just because Jesus responded in that way does not give us license to go around talking to people in that way. There was a time to do that. And I said to him that, that I have limited my conversation with this, with this atheist because I don't want to cast my pearls before swine, but that doesn't mean that I call him a pig. So we need to be very careful about the way that we present the truth. And don't let the way that we present it get in the way of the truth. People are not going to like a lot of what we say, but let it be because of the words, not because of us. Maybe, maybe you or somebody you know is a, a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. By God's grace, you hear the word preached here week in, week out. And I want to ask, what are you doing about it? Are you putting it into practice in your life? Are you practicing what I preach? Are you practicing what you preach? Now again, we all fail, but are you walking in repentance? Are you striving towards obedience in these things? Many people just love to accumulate knowledge, and they, they just consume books. But what are they doing with the knowledge that they already have? We need to try to put into practice what we already know before we, before we try to add to that. Or maybe it's, it's a matter of not caring for the needy. That's a big theme here. It's, James talks about it in 127 and 214 to 17. A matter of, of are we being concerned for the, the needs of others and not just for ourselves? Jesus cared for the needy, and so should we. His followers are to be a reflection of him. Now, the, the, those that uh, are in the emergent church have reacted to a perceived failure on the part of the church to mercy ministry. So they've taken the pendulum way to the other end, to the other extreme, and they say following Jesus is all about helping people. It's all about feeding the, the, feeding the hungry and clothing the poor. But true religion, James says, is it's, well, it's both. It's, it's not helping the needy with their material needs to the neglect of their spiritual needs. It's both and. It is not either or. Or maybe it's the sin of partiality, like, it, like James talks about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, where, where people in the church were, were judging people according to worldly standards and exalting the people that the world exalts, the so-called beautiful people all the while demeaning those that the world looks down on. And James likens this type of judging to murder in the heart. That's how serious, seriously he takes it. Or maybe it's somebody who says they have faith, but don't back it up with works of obedience. That's 
um, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, where he says that, that even the demons believe and tremble, but faith without works is dead. James wrote there that, that Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And on the face of it, if you take that verse out of context, it appears to be saying that, that Paul was wrong because Abraham used the same verse, Genesis 15, 16, when he says that, that Abraham was justified by faith. So what's happening here? Do, do Paul and James disagree with each other? Well, the, the correct hermeneutic, the correct way to study your Bible is to start with the presupposition that God's word never contradicts itself. So you can't have James and Paul disagreeing with each other because they, they both agree. They're both filled with the same Holy Spirit. They cannot disagree with each other. But when you consider the context, when you consider the authorial intent, you see that they're looking at the, at the same issue from two different sides. It's two sides of the same coin. So while Paul was dealing with the issue of the issue of legalism and trying to earn our way into heaven by our works, James is dealing with the issue of antinomianism or saying that, that we're saved by grace alone so that we can do whatever we want. Now, Martin Luther was, was so troubled by this and, and his lack of understanding of this that in his 1522 edition or preface of the, of the New Testament, he, he considered whether James should even be a part of the canon, and he, he called James an epistle of straw. But Luther eventually got it, and he actually removed, removed that, that line, and he understood what James is really saying. In fact, he, he balanced James and Paul's perspective and the relationship between works and faith perfectly and succinctly and powerfully with his comment, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So that incorporates what Paul says, yes, we are saved by faith alone. But like James says, if we are truly saved, there will be works in keeping with repentance. Again, it's, it's both and. They're both true. So we embrace them both. Or maybe it's somebody who doesn't bridle their tongue, and that's a theme really throughout um, the book of James, but he focuses mainly on it there in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and he talks about how the, the tongue, although it is a, a relatively small organ, is a very powerful tool for good or for ill. It can do good, like in the case of, of a bit in a horse's mouth, where a, a roughly six-inch piece of metal can guide and steer an animal that is over a thousand pounds, this little piece of metal. And he also talks about, about a ship's rudder. Now, the, the rudder of the Titanic was 15 feet long. Now, that's a lot smaller, or so rather a lot bigger than, than a, 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 a horse's bit, 15 feet long. But when you consider it, in comparison with the size of the Titanic at 882 feet. That 15-foot-long piece of metal is guiding a ship that is 882 feet long. And so the course of our lives is steered by our tongue. And James says that it can also be a powerful tool for evil. He talks about it being a fire, a world of unrighteousness, and is set on fire by, by hell. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we speak, we're really revealing what is going on in our hearts. And I would argue that the, that the tongue is one of the most powerful pieces of fruit in our lives for revealing where we're really at with God. 
when we think about the way that 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 the, that a tongue can be used in the church it can be used to spread the fire of slander and gossip and murmuring or it can be used to quench those flames by applying the word of God to that situation in the power of his spirit, speaking the truth in love with our brothers and sisters. When somebody insults us we can, we can, or, or treats us unkindly, we can either respond in kind or we can respond to them kindly. We can, we can heap hot coals on somebody's head hoping that it's going to bring them to repentance by, by turning the other cheek, by loving somebody who is behaving in an unloving way towards us. Or maybe it's, it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition like in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James talks about the, the, the worldly wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic because where jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every vile practice. And it's opposed to the wisdom which comes from above, which is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, it's sincere, and it produces righteousness. Or maybe it's covetousness and worldliness, like in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We covet things that please our flesh. We want the things of the world because we think that the world will make us happy. The flesh and the world may seem like your friends, but they are tools of the devil who wants to destroy you. If you follow after those things, you are making yourself the enemy of God. But if you saw them as what they really are, you would flee from those things. You know, if, if, if that hungry bear in the woods knew that there was a trap sitting under that raw meat, no matter how hungry he was, he would never go after it because he knew, because he would know that it means his skin. And those things, the things that, that appeal to the flesh, the things that come from the world are every bit as dangerous to us as that meat is to that hungry bear. What about self, self-reliant pride? Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, when people make their plans and leave God out of them, forgetting that, that every good thing that we have comes from God's providence. So we neglect the very one who is blessing us. We need to realize that, that even our next breath is a gift from God to be used for his glory. Or maybe sinfully acquired wealth, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, where the wicked wealthy are, are getting their money at the expense of the, the righteous poor. They're condemning them, they're bringing before the courts, and they're even murdering them all in the name of their sinful wealth. And James there called the, the, those, those people who are being oppressed to patience in suffering in chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, because they, they are to rest on the fact that, that God is the righteous judge and that he is coming to execute justice and to right every wrong. So they need to have their reliance on the God who judges rightly. Or taking oaths in chapter 5, verse 12, is your word your bond? Do you have a reputation for following through on a promise? How are you doing in your business, in your, in your church and marriage relationships? Are you avoiding becoming yoked to unbelievers? Are you abiding by the church membership 
agreement that you have made to support this church prayerfully and financially? Are you making every effort to attend faithfully and to care for each other? And I'll be talking about that in a very practical way in a few minutes. Are you standing by your marriage covenant to love, honor, and cherish till death do you part? And are you repenting when you fail in those things? Are you praying and and singing praises to God in the issues of life from, from chapter 5, verses 13 to 17? Are you turning to God when you're sick? Are you turning to God in repentance from sin? Are you turning to God in prayer? It is the prayer of faith that saves. And, and just a quick word on this here. The prayer of faith is not a special category of faith or a special category of prayer. It's not, here's this kind of prayer, and then there, whoa, there's the prayer of faith. There is no such thing as a prayer that is not a prayer of faith. Every prayer is a prayer of faith, if your faith is in the one true God. And so as I said at the outset, if you're, if you're lacking in faith in those areas, you can go to the elders, you can go to one another and say, I'm failing. My faith is flagging. I need your help. Would you intercede for me? Would you pray for me? Can I lean on your faith for a little bit while mine is nursed and while my faith grows? Maybe you're in sin and and you need that. Maybe you you need to, 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 to turn away from that sin and to put your faith in God afresh. Or maybe you need to do that for a first time. But I trust that, that, that as we have, have gone through these things together, and I'll draw to a close in a moment with verses 19 and 20, but, but again, I wanted to give an opportunity for some of us to share what God has done in our hearts through thinking about these things. So, so let me ask, how has God encouraged you? How has God challenged you? What are you doing to, to, to put that into effect, to, to follow through, to be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer? So I'll ask if Joel can, can come forward and take a mic. So again, please don't be shy. Um, if you've got something you'd like to share, please feel free to come on down and, and share that with us for God's glory. Well, Joel, I know you and I, you and I spoke about it earlier, so would you like to, to kick it off, please? Sure. Uh, well, a couple of the things that have challenged me the most is my attitude during uh, trials, even the small trials that I've gone through in my life to uh, not slip into just my all-consuming thought, wanting to get out of it, but allowing God to help me to grow through it. And also my uh, my prayer life, not just praying when I need something, but praying at all times, giving thanks to God when times are good and when times aren't so good. Okay, thank you, Joel. Anybody else? Um, I think I've been convicted about uh, making sure that what comes out of my mouth glorifies God and uh, builds others up and uh, isn't hurtful in any way. Praise God. Thank you. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we've learned the most uh, lately with it is that uh, you can have the doctrine, but if your heart isn't in the right place, the trials aren't for anything because... you, you're not uh, the 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 need to be constantly seeking out where your heart is at because if uh, if your heart is in the right place you can have all the doctrine in the world but those trials are going to beat your assurance pieces mm-hmm. so like it's on rocks so it's been uh, one of the things we've learned from James lately. Thank you. I don't know if I can say this shortly, but anyways. <laughs> um, 
I guess I've, I was convicted yesterday of something and, um, the, what we're, he's talking about this morning has kind of brought it together for me. So I'll, I'll just, uh, yesterday I went to, um, a, a, a older couple's house and picked up some goats. <laughs> and, um, while we were there, I, I, I came back and I felt, I just had such a compassion for these people. And I came back and I, I thought to myself, you know what? I never shared the gospel with them. And I just been feeling guilty about it all night. And um, then the Lord um, convicted me too that I've, I, I paid him for the goats. I forgot to pay him for his hay. So I thought, oh, I need to go. It's an excuse to call them back or else I need to go back. And I thought, well, okay, Lord, you always work things out for the good. And um, then we we uh, started um, singing this song this morning about rescue the perishing. And um, as we were singing it, uh, these thoughts of this this man were going through my head. And um, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore, touched by a loving heart. Wakened by kindness, chords that are broken will vibrate once more. And I, I was convicted to um, maybe go to these people, I don't know, at some point in time with our family or part of us and just offer help because I know the lady has to have an operation. And um, But anyways, it's just how everything's coming together for me that th this um, sermon and, and everything and the conviction in my heart. But the, my biggest problem is my lack of faith. <laughs> That's also what he talked about this morning. Um, is that I have such a hard time. I have compassion for people, but to actually present the gospel, it, for me, it's, it's very hard to do that. And so I would like to ask your help to support me um, to go to these people and um, to, to present the gospel. And either we do it through works, or I know my husband and my son are better at presenting the gospel, and, um, and so I'll take them along. <laughs> but um, I just pray, ask you to support us, because I really feel convicted that we need to go back. And their name is um, Mr. and Mrs. Bill and Grace Kennedy. And I just pray that, um, I just ask, for prayer, because I need that that support. And so, anyways, so that's how the Lord works. Anybody else? Um. Thank you, John, that you give us this opportunity to, to share with each other. I think that the one thing that struck me in the series in James is, um, is, is dealing with affliction and, and trials, and, and it comes into all of our lives. And um, I think that what makes the difference is if it comes from a perspective of faith or, or just ourselves. And, and God gives us that faith to deal with trials and, and struggles that come to all of us. And um, it's, it's vitally important that we respond in terms of it's God's sovereign will, first off, and that it is ultimately important how we respond to that and that sometimes we have to accept those trials and struggles in terms of God is ultimately concerned for our spiritual health first. And it does fly in the face of the prosperity gospel that you talked about, which isn't actually a gospel at all. It's a false gospel because God is, is very concerned with the acts of uh, obedience to him and, uh, and our love for him. And so we all go through it, and um, just wanted to share that with you. Thanks, Joel.
Well, thank you for, uh, for sharing that, um, people. It's, it's really encouraging. I, I trust all of us. And uh, there might be something else that, that you're aware of. And, and just, to, you know, when we have fellowship afterwards, take the time to, to talk to each other about it and, and say, you know, that really challenged me or that really blessed me. Or I, I saw something here in a, in a different light because we, we should come to the study of God's word with a sense of expectancy of what God is going to do through his word. You know, you, you, you don't come here to hear me. You come here to hear God's word. I'm not here to be an entertainer. I'm not, I'm not going to tap dance for you or put on a clown suit. You know, there's, there's plenty of places you can go to get that. We need God's word. And we need God's spirit to apply the things of God's word to our hearts. So it, it touches my heart as I hear what God's doing in your hearts. And so just, uh, just to, to, to finish here with, with, finally with a look at, at verses 19 and 20. And, uh, and James again is telling us here to do something about it. To do something about it. He says, let me read it for you again. Chapter 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James here is, is speaking with the authority of an apostle and he's telling you to do something about it. Beloved, God himself is telling you to do something about it about it. He's telling you that, that if you're aware of, of somebody that, that especially those who are, are claiming to be followers of Christ, that's James's first concern here. He's saying to go after them, to bring them back, to rescue the perishing. So, I mean, we need to face it that we, as I said at the outset, we live in, a, in an individualistic culture. We live in a culture that, is, that caters to self. And I think a big part of the problem is, is we don't even realize how much the culture has rubbed off on us. You know, a fish has no idea what it feels like to be wet. Because the fish is immersed in its environment, it knows nothing else. So we need to intentionally set aside the things that the culture tells us and, and dive deep into God's word and put off what the world tells us and put on what God's word tells us about these things. We need community. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of drawing near. So we, we need to help each other to stay on the path. It's, it's, it's one of the means of grace that God gives in order to help us stay saved is, is the, the, the means of grace of fellowship. Is getting together after a service or through the week and having coffee and, and talking about not the, the Stanley Cup final, but talking about how you're doing with the Lord. So he says, if any one of you wanders from the truth and somebody brings him back. Now, uh, although he talks about here wandering from the truth, his focus is not so much on, on doctrinal error that leads to heresy, but on practical sin that leads to apostasy. So James's focus here has been consistently on orthopraxis, not orthodoxy. Right practice over right beliefs. But right beliefs will lead to right practice. And again, this is directed at people who are professing Christians who had somehow wandered from the truth. So if anyone brings them back, we need to ask the question, well, brings them back from what? He says in verse 20, let him know that whoever brings him a sinner back from his wanting will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So first of all, they're being saved from death. 
And if you're really thinking about what this means, this might cause you to ask then, it's a logical question, can you lose your salvation? This is a, it's a huge issue, and it's not one that, that I really have time to cover exhaustively in the time we have left this morning. But seeing as you've asked, no, you can't lose your salvation. And why not? Because your salvation doesn't depend on you. If your salvation depended on you, you couldn't stay saved for one microsecond because you are still a sinner. You're still a sinner. God's requirement is for us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. You can't do that for one microsecond apart from God's grace in your life. Likewise, he tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Neither can we do that for one microsecond apart from God's grace in our lives. So, so the reason why we, can, why we stay saved, why we can't lose our salvation, it's not because of our faithfulness, it's because of God's faithfulness. Because God is faithful to his promises. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. You know, how often have you heard people quote 2 Peter 3.9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, by saying that, that, what's, that what is being said here is that God wants to save everybody. Beloved, that is pulling that verse so out of context, it makes my head spin. What does the rest of the verse say? What does the rest of the verse say? It says that that. God is, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards everybody. No, it's patient towards you. Not wishing that any of you should perish and that all of you should come to repentance. Peter is writing this letter to the church. God's promise is to the church. And if this verse is saying what people say it's saying, then that is universalism. That means everybody gets saved. And we know from God's word that that is not the case. But again, it is God's promise to the church that God is faithful. And one of the ways that he is faithful is by sending us brothers and sisters to walk along the path with us, to correct us when we we stray from the truth. We were talking on on Friday night um, at the family night with with our youth about church discipline. And there's probably not very many youth groups that are going to be talking about church discipline on on a Friday night. But we're working through 1 Corinthians, and this is what comes up here. And again, it is that God gives us church discipline. We talked about why God gives us church discipline. It's for, first of all, for his glory. One of the things that, that, that we're called to do in Matthew 18 is if somebody has sinned, we, we're commanded to go to them, to go to them privately. And if that doesn't work, then we take along a, another one or two brothers or sisters with us. And if that doesn't work, then we take it before the church. And then the church goes after that person. And if that doesn't work, and only then, out of love, the church corporately makes a decision to remove that person from fellowship, to excommunicate that person. And that means, to excommunicate means that that we are treating you as an unbeliever. You are not welcome to, to table fellowship with us around the Lord's Supper. 
excommunication. And the hope is that for the glory of God, that this person will come to repentance. You treat them like an unbeliever. You share the gospel with them. It's also for the purity of the church. It's also because of a reputation in the world. And if none of those reasons were good enough, it's because God commands us to do it. So we do that. It's, it's out of love. We go to that person hoping they're going to repent. We see this, this principle here in, in Galatians chapter 6. Here in Galatians 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love. Love. So if you love that person, you will go to them. And, and it's not going to be fun. It's hard. It's hard. But if they repent, you have gained your brother. And God is glorified. And we grow together as a body. That's what James is calling us to do. When we see these things in ourselves, we repent and turn to Jesus. When we see these things in other people, we, we encourage them to repent and turn to Jesus. It's the loving thing to do. So I'm going to close here in a moment with the doxology and, and from, from Jude 24 and 25. And I want you to think about it because this is really, this is really that our confidence. This is where our confidence lies. So don't let this just be a, a rote thing that we do um, when the service ends. Think about these things. Meditate on these things.